Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. My daughters asked me to wear the Christmas hat while I preached. Um, This here is the compromise. It'll just hang off the pulpit instead, all right? Um, Our text today may seem strange for Christmas morning, but I assure you it will make all the sense in the world as we go through the sermon. I'm not using slides this morning. Um, We intentionally had Christmas morning try and be as light a lift as possible, so I didn't even put together slides so that people don't have to worry about running them. They can just enjoy being here. Um, We're in Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to read for us just a couple of verses, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the privilege of worshiping together on Christmas morning. We pray that you would speak to us, you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us by your word, and Lord, that we would deepen in our love for your son, Jesus. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout the Advent season, we've been looking at some of the favorite Christmas carols of the church. I don't know if you remember the first one we started with, um, Not a Christmas Carol. And we end with Not a Christmas Carol. It's the same song. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. I learned that as a children's chorus in Sunday school. Um, I didn't even know there were verses until we preached through the sermon at the beginning of Advent. I had no idea someone had actually written the full song. I thought it was just a children's chorus because I came up in the church. Um, a lot of people didn't. A lot of people don't have the, um, what I've learned now, the privilege of growing up, going to Sunday school, learning the songs, um, learning Father Abraham and all 97 verses of it with the marching and all that. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I didn't realize how much of a privilege that was. And um, that kind of a privilege of growing up in church, I think a story from my childhood really gets across how important it was to my mom and dad to have me in church every week. Uh, It was 1994, Sunday morning. I'll never forget. Christmas morning, 1994. Because I got up and it was the worst news possible Christmas was on a Sunday, which meant I had to go to church. And so we pile in our Ford Econoline van. You remember those tanks? You could take that into war and survive, all right? Those things were beasts. We pile into this Ford Econoline van, and off the three of us go to church. Now, this particular Christmas morning in Arizona was different because it was cold and it was icy. I think it had rained and then it had frozen, and it was, it was not fun. But my dad's driving a tank, so we're fine. We're headed to church, taking our time, going relatively slowly. 
And we come up to an intersection, maybe two blocks from the church. Green light, everything's fine. And a van comes shooting through the intersection. We're in a tank. And we hit that thing full bore. Now, here's the thing. In 1994 in Arizona, seatbelts were pretty well encouraged. But, you know, if you didn't happen to wear the seatbelt, your dad, my dad, who was born in 1928 and said, well, I survived with seatbelts without seatbelts my whole life, he's not going to be all that worried if you're not wearing yours. So I'm sitting in the bucket seat in the back of the Econoline van right behind my mom's seat, and we plow directly into the side of this van, and I plow my face directly into the back of my mom's seat. Whack! Bounced right off, because I was eight. You can bounce in those years. I was totally fine. Didn't even, didn't even phase me. We get out. You know, we're worried about that we have a little, like, dent in the bumper because it's a Ford Econoline van, and their newer minivan is, like, caved in on the side. So they're out making sure everybody's okay. And a few minutes later, here come Frank and Edna Estelle in their car. And they see, hey, people we go to church with. They've been in an accident. They pull over to make sure we're okay. Christian family, my parents put me in Frank and Edna's car and sent me to church without them. That was my Christmas. I went to church. They dealt with all the insurance and all that. They came by and picked me up afterwards, but their son was not missing church on Christmas morning. And so to all of you who have braved Christmas morning and come to be here, my little eight-year-old self sees you and thanks you for continuing that tradition of coming to worship on Christmas morning, especially a thank you to the people who are serving, to Carrington, to Josue, to Tina, to Sam, uh, to Joanne and Dan who helped set up, to Gretchen who was greeting people, people who decided on Christmas morning they weren't just going to come, but they were going to serve. That is uh, an incredible gift. So thank you to all of you for serving. Of course, there's been debate, because there's always debate about everything, about whether or not churches should be open on Christmas morning. And I know there are some who have chosen to close, and I'm sure they have good reason for it. Um, but I, I appreciate that when I mentioned to everyone here, hey, we're going to be open on Christmas morning, not only were people um, willing to say, yeah, of course, let's do it, but they were willing to serve, dive in and be a part of it. I think that says something about our church family. We worship on Christmas morning, not just because it's a fun um, and you know, somewhat more informal service. It's, it's not just to remember Jesus, although we do. But when we worship, we remember not just a birth, but who this Jesus is. It's about his identity. This isn't about just a child who was born, a historical figure. Right? We're not getting up on a Sunday morning and coming in when we could be sleeping in and giving presents on George Washington's birthday. We're not doing that on, you know, I, I have personal heroes. I would probably do it. I'd do it for Dr. King or Harriet Tubman. I'd do it for Abraham Lincoln. I'd do it for these folks, sure, but we don't because why? why? It's for Jesus, for a world-changing, life-changing figure who is more than a historical person, who's more than a great man, but as we'll see today, is God himself in the flesh come to save his people from their sins.
We've been in the Gospel of Matthew this whole Advent season, and it's interesting, Matthew never really gets in the Christmas story proper. He never gets to the identity of Jesus, not his divine identity. He's focused in these first couple chapters on Jesus as king, as a ruler come to supplant Herod, as a ruler come to be king of kings and lord of lords. But the big reveal, he holds that back. Is like a writer who doesn't want to give all the information away in the first couple chapters. He wants you to wait a little more for a, a great twist. And that twist comes in the baptism. Jesus is baptized not because he's a sinner in need of repentance, but he's baptized in solidarity with his people who need baptism because they are sinners. He enters into the baptismal waters, and when he does, something different happens for him than happens for anybody else because he is the only sinless one who enters into baptismal waters, and heaven rips itself open in reply. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Not an actual dove, but descending like a dove. Matthew's trying to capture what people saw a physical manifestation, or at least he seemed kind of visible, a visible physical representation of the Spirit of God comes and descends and hovers over Jesus. And then a voice comes out of heaven. The voice, we quickly realize, is the voice of the Father because he calls Jesus his beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, it seems that in this moment, Jesus is the only one who hears and sees what takes place. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God ascending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the moment that inaugurates Jesus' ministry. Father and Son have a moment. Yes, there's others around, but they have this intimate moment where the Father says, you're my Son. I'm pleased with you. I love you. It is a helpful thing to hear because immediately after this, Jesus will be driven out into the wilderness. He'll be tempted for 40 days, and the devil will question his identity over and over again. Are you really the Son of God? Really? And here he must cling to his father's words. I am the son of God and he is pleased with me. He is the son of God as a member of the Trinity. So let's talk about who this Jesus is. Right? Matthew waits this whole time to give us the reveal that he's the son of God. Luke is not interested in making us wait. If you look at some of these verses in John, he's right up front. He wants you to know right away, hey, this is the Son of God, by the way. Son of God, don't miss that he's the Son of God. Luke 1, 17, talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to return the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient of the, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There Jesus is called the Lord. That's language that's reserved for God and God alone. You get to verse 32, and here's what the angel tells Mary. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
Not just a king, not just a man, but God in the flesh. Just a little while earlier, or sorry, a little later in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And when Gabriel shows up to the shepherds, he tells the poorest of the poor, the, the despised, the outcast, the outsider, fear not, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke will not let us wonder who is this Jesus. He is the Lord. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, the full Godhead. He is all that God is, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, holy. That is who he is. Even as a child in the manger, he upholds the universe with the word of his power. This is the miracle of the incarnation. He gives up none of his deity. None of his deity to take on flesh. He is God, which makes us wonder in awe that this God would willingly suffer. He is God, omniscient, omnipotent. And yet, took on flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity, the triune God, existing in all time, in all places, in his fullness, one God in three persons. He is not only called, though, the Son of God. There are other biblical writers that have other names for him. And um, as we go through these names, I don't want you to see them as contradictory because they're not. The New Testament authors aren't intending for us to try and swap out, well, which one is right? They're trying to give us a, a fully-orbed, multifaceted view of Jesus Christ. In Colossians... Paul uses a different word for Jesus. He calls Jesus an image. Let's look at this. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. To be an image is to um, be an earthly vessel inhabited by a divine being. That's an ancient Near East way of understanding an image. Image and idol are basically used interchangeably in the Old Testament. And if you were um, a, a worshiper of idols, what you would do is you would build yourself an idol out of stone or out of wood, and you'd put it somewhere in the hopes that the God this image represented would actually show up and indwell that image, and then you would sacrifice to that image. That was the understanding of creating idols, creating images. We are made in the image, which means we are made with the capacity of beholding God within us. Just what happens when we are saved. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be in the image of God. But we are not made in the image of God in the same way that Jesus is the image. You see the difference. We're made in his image, but he 
is the image. He is the perfect representation of God on earth, fully God, fully man. This is the Jesus in that manger, the Jesus Mary sang about, the Jesus Simeon sang about, the Jesus that Anna, when she heard, left the temple and told everyone about. The image, the very being of God, firstborn of all creation, not because he is the firstborn, but the firstborn of a new creation, for there is a new humanity being born out of Christ by faith. This is that Jesus in the manger. We want to have an appropriate understanding of who he is, not merely a baby, but the second person of the Trinity upholding the universe by the word of his power, the perfect very being of God in flesh dwelling among us. The word of God, that's what John calls him. If you go to the gospel of John, people often say John doesn't have a nativity scene in it. And he doesn't have a traditional nativity scene, that's true. You can't go to John and learn about shepherds or wise men. You don't learn about Mary and Joseph coming to Bethlehem or fleeing to Egypt. You get none of that. Instead, in John, you get what sounds pretty philosophical, but is deeply profound. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, let's think about a word for a second. What is a word? A word is the communication of an idea, right? I was uh, driving with my daughter, taking her to school. She asked me a question I thought was just a fantastic question. Why are there letters and numbers? Tell you what, I've never thought of that before in my life. (laughs) Never. She asked this question, why are there letters and numbers? And I had to explain to her, well, letters are used to form words. And if we want to communicate what we feel and what we think, we want to be able to talk with one another, if we want to communicate ourselves to one another, we need words. That's how we communicate ourselves, not just our thoughts, our very selves with one another through words. And the Greeks understood this, and they actually took this to a whole other level. To be the word, or the logos, is to be the sum of all reason and knowledge. This is the sum of all reason and knowledge. And for the Greeks, that's the, the pinnacle, that's the highest All of life to the Greeks was to reach the logos, was to apprehend pure knowledge, pure idea. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The word is the very essence of God communicated to others. Just as we use a word to communicate ourselves, God uses the word, which means there is no distinction between the word and God. Just like I can't say something to you, and then you say, all right, well, you know, Marcus believes the Eagles are the greatest football team in the history of the world. I do believe that. It's true. We are. But, as if I play for them. Um, You can't then say, well, you know, 
he might have said he's an Eagles fan. But he's not actually an Eagles fan because what he says and who he is are two different things. We separate them, right? Those are just words. No, I'm communicating myself. It's, it's who I am. I'm an Eagles fan. It's part of my identity. Not as big a part as you may think, all right? Give me a little grace. It's a part of who I am. And so when God gives us his word, he's not communicating just an idea. He's communicating his very self to us. It is who he is. Jesus, then, is this word because John continues. This is where we get the incarnation. This is where we get Jesus actually being born. And the word, verse 14, became flesh, birth, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son, the Word and the Son, the same person, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is Jesus in this manger? He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God's very communication of himself to us. He is the Word. And the Word is is God. Mark uses a different phrase. He uses some of these others as well. But he uses a phrase, son of man. This is because Jesus loved to use this for himself. Son of man. What's interesting the way that Mark uses son of man is he often connects it to what will happen at the end of Jesus' life. He connects it to Jesus' death but not just his death. Let's look at a couple of these verses in Mark. He is the Son of God. He is the image of God. He is the Word of God. He is the Son of Man. Verse 45. This is Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came, he's talking about himself, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This child in the manger is the Son of Man, come to give his life as a ransom for many. It is his death in view when Mark writes of the Son of Man, but not just his death, because Jesus will refer to himself as the Son of Man in another context as well. Not just these, but these are helpful for us. Mark chapter 13, verse 26. He's talking about the last day. He says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And so what do we have here but our very salvation? He continues, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He will come and he will collect his people. Yes, he is the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, upholding the universe by the word of his power while he cries in a manger for his mother. He is also the image of God, the very representative of God, the perfect representative, the image himself of God. He is the word of God, God communicating himself to us. He is the son of man. All of those things are true. And he took on flesh that he might die as a ransom for us. And that he might come in power and glory to rescue us from the ends of the earth and bring us into glory. He does so because he came as a servant. 
Paul also describes the birth of Jesus. We don't think of it this way, but on Christmas, I think it's helpful to notice this is Paul's version of the birth story. Hopefully you're seeing these different aspects of the birth narrative of Jesus all coming together. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, brothers and sisters, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, son of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's his. He doesn't have to hold on to it. It is who he is. He's not struggling divinity. The core of who he is is divine. He is God. It's not a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Not born in the halls of power, born in a manger to the poor, to the outcast, to the despised. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who this Jesus is that we worship and celebrate this morning. He is God in the flesh, come as a servant. At the baptism, God the Father told God the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's not the only time in Matthew's gospel that we hear this, though this is given to Jesus in Matthew's account. God says this to other people. The Father says this to other people in Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew 17, we see this incredible vision. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Jesus said, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents. It was the Feast of Booths. They set up tents. And we'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, listen to this, this is my beloved son. Look, it's different now. He said to this to them, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Exact same words. And follows it with a command. Listen to him. We are Peter, James, and John here. And we hear the same words that Jesus spoke to his son at the baptism. The exact same words. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we're given a command. Listen to him. Listen to him. Christmas is not just a remembrance of the past. It is. We remember the birth of Christ. 
It is also a declaration of the present. He's with us. Listen to him. Christmas is a call to obedience. We see who this Jesus is in the manger. Second person of the Trinity. The image of God. The word of God. Son of man. Servant of men. We meet this Christ in the manger. But we do not get to meet this Christ and walk away unchanged. But like the wise men, like the shepherds, we meet this Christ and a response is demanded of us. Listen to him. Obey this one. Obey him. This is who Jesus is. Now it's ours to follow him like Peter and Simon and Andrew. It's ours to sit at his feet like Mary the disciple. It's ours to listen to him, to obey him. This is how we celebrate Christmas. We devote our very beings to this one who took on flesh and dwelt among us that he might save us from our sins and bring us into glory. You see, it is remembrance of the past, but it's also a declaration of our present heart before the Lord, and it is a promise of the future. For he will return for his people in power and in glory, gathering us from the ends of the earth that we might worship him in glory forever. That's the Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, as we meditate today on who you are, we are in awe that you, almighty God, would take on flesh, even the form of a servant, that you would be a baby needing to be fed, needing to be taught how to walk, that you would demean yourself, humiliate yourself in this way on our behalf. Lord, those are, I don't have words. And you did this because you love us. God so loved the world, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever would believe will not perish but have eternal life. Only because of your great love for us have you done this. I pray that we would take time throughout this Christmas week as we celebrate and as we eat too much and open presents and have fun, would we also take time to meditate on who was really in that little manger? The God of the universe, the Son of God, the image of God, the Word of God, took on flesh to be the Son of Man for us taking the form of a servant, that we might follow you, obey you, listen to you, that we might serve others as you have served us. God, would we be in awe, struck with wonder, the glory of what happened on Christmas morning. We are amazed by you. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.